Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the theological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm joined by two guests to discuss the breaking news out of Georgia. Last week in October, 2021, the Board of Regents of the University System of Georgia voted to approve a new set of policies relating to post-tenure review. The regents oversee the system of state universities in Georgia, including the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech, as well as many others. The new rules put in place an expanded system for the evaluation of tenured faculty and include procedures for revoking tenure and dismissing professors. The proposal was controversial locally and has attracted the attention of groups interested in these issues, both the American Association of University Professors and the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education issued letters objecting to that policy. The AUP is now actively considering adding the Georgia system to its censure list. We will include links to the policy and to those letters in the show notes uh, to this episode so you can dig into the details. I should add that the Academic Freedom Alliance has not yet issued a formal statement on the events in Georgia, but this proposal is an important one and it's easy to imagine that policymakers and trustees across the country will be taking a look at what Georgia has done and some might well follow Georgia's lead. To help me work through the issues at play here, I'm joined by two guests. Matthew Bodie is an associate professor of English at the University of North Georgia and the conference president of the Georgia chapter of the AAUP. Tyler Coward is the senior legislative counsel at FIRE. Both have been involved in the developments in Georgia. Matthew, Tyler, welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Happy to be um, here. So this is a complicated and detailed policy. So let me begin by trying to get some of the basics on the table and then we'll dig into more details as we go. Um, the Georgia system already had a policy of five-year review for tenured faculty, uh, which allowed for the possibility of firing faculty for cause. Uh, the new policy puts in place a system of corrective post-tenure review uh, in the language of the policy that is required after two unsatisfactory annual performance reviews in a row. Um, that allows for the creation of a performance plan, which could lead to the dismissal of the faculty member if there's not sufficient progress uh, made on that performance plan. Uh, moreover, these uh, quote-unquote remedial actions um, are specifically outside the process laid out um, in the old rules uh, for disciplining and removing faculty uh, for cause. Um, so just as a basic descriptive matter and from the big picture perspective, have I adequately described the key features that ought to concern us and are there corrections and additions we ought to get on the table um, right from the beginning? No, that's a good summary. Good concise summary. Yeah, I think okay. so as well. 
Okay, great. So um, we'll certainly be uh, trying to walk through some of the more specific language and, and details of, of uh, what is quite a complicated um, policy that the regents um, have adopted. Um, but let me start um, uh, with you, Matthew, and if you can just walk us through the objections that the AAUP um, has raised to this policy um, as it was being uh, considered by the board. Well, I think we, we've summed up our objections in the sense that this is the death of tenure as due process. Uh, in your summary, you noted that the changes they've made to the post-tenure review are taken out from underneath the umbrella of a dismissal for cause policy. So while they did have an original language in, in one of the versions about being fired for reasons other than cause, which also translated into uh, no cause, um, they took that out and, and specified that any remedial action in our posting review would be uh, not under dismissal for cause. So basically at the moment when a professor needs it the most, needs that faculty-led hearing that under dismissal for cause policy grants you to decide um, whether or not you have a job that would make a recommendation to the president. At that very moment, the professor needs a faculty-led peer review that is removed in this new policy. Now, this is after a series of, as you said, improvement plans and, and, and other things. But at the same time, that due process is vitally important to tenure. And that's the, the, the basis of tenure is due process, a specific process laid out that's led by a faculty uh, peer review. And that is now gone. And that's why we're describing this as the death of tenure. It certainly affects a small group of people. But at the same time, you also put in uh, the uh, annual review uh, addendums that they made and the student success addendum that they made. And don't forget, the line in the policy now that, that threats uh, by the Board of Regents to take back the tenure decisions from local campuses. Now, they've had that power uh, before, and they gave it to local campuses in 2007 for very good reasons. But to threaten to take that back along with these policies, it is a multifaceted attack upon tenure, and, and it includes the, the direct death of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Tyler Fire also sent a letter to uh, the regents raising concerns about the policy. Can you uh, sort of outline the concerns you laid out in the letters and, um, and are there significant differences between the angle that Fire took on this um, and the angle that the AUP has taken on this? Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah we, we outlined two broad concerns in our letter, one of which um, Matt has already, has already talked about. And they, in, in their policy proposal in September, mentioned that they would be able to fire faculty or contract faculty without cause. Uh, we, we, we raised that concern in the letter. Thankfully, that, that language was changed. Uh, and uh, so, so we're, we were happy to see that. Uh, what the, one of the concerns that we, the, the bigger concern that we had, was the sort, sort of taking away tenure decisions from faculty and member institutions and essentially giving the chancellor's office a veto over, over these uh, policies. Uh, the sort of process now that this policy has been adopted is that institutions can submit to the chancellor uh, their proposed post-tenure review policies and procedures, and then the chancellor can then give feedback or uh, provide them some bullet points for what they, they should and shouldn't be doing. And from our perspective, the Board of Regents are appointed by the governor and the Board of Regents in turn appoint the chancellor. Uh, so we are concerned that there could be some political influences in these post-tenure review considerations that have been historically left to uh, member institutions and to faculty members that now sort of essentially have the, a veto threat hanging over them by the chancellor's office. Um, 
there's lots of elements to uh, the rule changes that were made. And, and one uh, element uh, that you just mentioned, Matthew, uh, has gotten a lot less attention and it gets a less controversial element, but I thought it'd be worth talking about um, in part just because it's unusual um, and maybe worth unpacking. And, and Matthew, you were, you were suggesting really this was sort of the starting point uh, for the regents uh, uh, embarking on this uh, broad policy change in general. And that's the addition to uh, the tenure criteria um, of a focus on what uh, the new policy calls uh, student success activities, uh, which is language that gets uh, repeated um, throughout several different uh, provisions of the new uh, faculty rules um, about how faculty are going to be evaluated um, uh, when they're brought up for promotion and potentially could become part of the post-tenure uh, review uh, process as well. Um, so uh, this is unusual language and not one that you find at uh, many other universities. Um, so do you have a sense as to what this is supposed to mean? What are the student success activities? Um, how is the university going to evaluate those? Um, uh, what kind of door are they opening here? Well, student success, from my understanding, is a buzzword in higher education administration for the last few years. And I still have no idea what it means. Um, I did email the university system and got a short response and they listed a few examples and then suggested it could be defined locally. And uh, I suspect they'll tell us what they want uh, to define it as. But it was, it was a way in which to um, make post-tenure review more, uh, give it more teeth, if you would. So they had to add an element. And so that meant adding an element to all the other previous reviews. So it got down to the annual review. And so everyone is affected by this. Uh, anyone who goes to an annual review, but also the, the tenure review uh, or the post-tenure review. So um, it, it certainly will be defined locally. It's gonna be different for the different tiers of schools that we had. UGA and Georgia Tech will be different. I suspect at my school, a much smaller school, a liberal arts institution, it'll be uh, mainly around advising students, uh, both in our major and outside our major. Uh, it could be uh, uh, participating in center, uh, center for Teaching and Learning activities. Honestly, we don't know. And it is axed by the professor for student success. And I will just say, I, I wrote uh, an op-ed about this. Uh, the, the acts that we do for student success don't directly translate into student success a lot. And so to judge us by the acts is, is one thing, but then to name it to student success, that's another. And we mainly have been told that we're already doing all these things. They're just highlighting them in our annual reviews. And I'm like, why do we need a separate category then? Uh, we have now five categories that we're judged by, uh, including now professional development, which is all things we're already doing. So it's just a strange way in which to highlight the things that we're already doing and, and not to retrain administrators to see it clearly in our annual reviews. Uh, so to answer your, your question, no, I have no idea what this is. Uh, I may be doing it now, and so I may be successful at it, but it wasn't defined in the policy, which is strange for the university system to go very into detail with many other things, but not this. Yeah, one of the concerns I had when I uh, first saw this language is, uh, uh, precisely because it's unfamiliar and undefined that it um, could go in lots of different directions. and. One of the kinds of concerns surrounding American higher education these days generally is students graduating and not being able to successfully find a job, not finding a job in their uh, field, uh, PhD students uh, not necessarily finding tenure jobs, et cetera. Um, and, and some uh, politicians have particularly um, argue then that universities ought to be held more accountable um, uh, for those kinds of student um, outcomes uh, in the long run. You can imagine this is sort of a trickle down effect of that uh, where individual faculty 
really ought to be held accountable uh, for whether or not their students find jobs. Is, is there any uh, hint that, that there's uh, that kind of accountability in the air at Georgia, or is that um, no. reading too much into this? We've been told that it, it wouldn't be data-based. It wouldn't be mm -hmm. quantitative. It wouldn't be, and I, I asked directly about something I'm often judged by, which is failure rates. We call them DWF rates, uh, DW and failure rates. And so, you know, if we're judged on the percentage of students that pass our class, I, I we turned into the K-12 system. Um, so there are qualitative things and I'm sure they will find some data to judge us by, but departments and colleges have, are judged by those rates. And so moving it down to the professor, individual professor, um, uh, level is not a far-fetched idea that said, um, yes, graduation rates and whether your students get jobs, whether your students participate in undergraduate research or in graduate student research, these are all things that could be underneath that category. Uh, but it, it's really uh, because you're centralizing more and more uh, review into department and deans and even in at the at the president level and then still not telling us what those definitions are. It, it's just a crazy way to run a system. Yeah, yeah. Um, before getting into the details of the revised policy, um, it's worth noting that Georgia already had a post-tenure uh, review system uh, in place. Uh, Georgia's not alone um, in having a post-tenure uh, review system uh, in place. And so it may be worth talking some just about these uh, post-tenure reviews uh, in general, uh, just before we talk about the details of the new version of it um, that Georgia's now embarking on. The AUP has long argued uh, that tenure, at least, is an essential protection for academic freedom. FIRE certainly emphasizes that um, in its letter uh, to Georgia as, as well. Um, to what degree should we see these kinds of post-tenure reviews as really being a, uh, intrinsically a threat um, uh, to uh, the tenure system? Um, and what would a good post-tenure review um, uh, look like from the perspective of, of, might as well start with the AUP, but then uh, shift to uh, FIRE and see, uh, Tyler, how much y'all thought about uh, post-tenure review as, as well. But Matthew? Well, I don't know if the AUP National has a definition of a good post-tenure review because they think it's a waste of time and resources <laughs> and ways to think about it. If they're going to do it, and I think that's the language they use, if they're going to do it, it should be a professional development kind of thing. It should not be punitive. And that's what makes Georgia's post-tenure review system now in place uh, uh, unique. Uh, it, it, talk about accountability. We're held accountable in many ways, but they're making it punitive. Uh, and so they're they're adding specific discipline steps that perhaps were already in place, just not laid out in great detail. Yes, you could have lost your tenure perhaps um, before, and now it's laid out in these several things you could lose uh, in post-tenure review. And yes, the, this whole thing came about from a study by Georgia of other states' post-tenure reviews and their own post-tenure review policies. Um, and so what they looked at, they kind of gave us a chart in their report that here's a state and here's what they did, but they didn't really go into great detail what they wanted from those other states. Uh, but from what we can gather in reading their report and hearing uh, people talk about what they did is that they wanted it to uh, make it harder to keep tenure. I, and I think that's the best conclusion to draw is that they wanted to use this policy to filter out some sort of mythical professor that's not doing their job um, or a mythical professor who seems to be not doing a, a good enough job. And let me put it that way. It, it's it's judging. Um, uh, it's a weird definition of professional fitness. And those are the reasons, causes we can be fired for, you know, lying, uh, committing a crime, lying on research, not doing, not coming to class for a year, some, you know, very specific things like that. Here, we're judged on the quality and quality of our research. 
uh, or the quality and quality of our teaching or other things that do not necessarily uh, be as uh, objective, uh, like you know, committing a crime. So these post-tenure review policies are have been around for a while, and they've mainly been professional development. What can we do? Can help you? How can we work with you better? Uh, how can we make you succeed over the next five years? Uh, that you proved your long-term um, impact to the university, uh, and now it's 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 a it's the death of tenure, which it makes it most ironic that you could lose your tenure through a post-tenure review. And so I, I don't think there is a definition of a good one, but if they're going to have it. <laughs> It shouldn't be punitive. Right. Uh, Tyler, how should we think about uh, posting review systems in general? Likewise, a fire does not have a model post tenure review system laid out. I think that if it is going to exist, uh, there need to, there needs to be a significant uh, faculty oversight and uh you know, buy-in into the system, uh, that it isn't just a top-down. Going back to, to an earlier point, FIRE's been long, long been concerned with the growth of the administration uh, at uh, administrative staffs at institutions of higher education. And through this post, that this manifests itself in, in a variety of ways, including here in these tenure review processes, but also in student discipline, uh, we see, um, you know, failures of administrators across the country, uh, uh, both policing speech and uh, in not affording due process to students. We want any sort of any sort of procedure here uh, to afford due process to professors before their tenure is is revoked, and it, to ensure that um, faculty members are a part of the process in determining what sort of criteria um, should be included on these in these reviews, and should be also be involved in the decision of revoking tenure as well, and it should yeah, be for cause. Yeah, I, I looked at some of the policies that are currently in place at the local campuses, Georgia and Georgia Tech, for example, and what uh, faculty play a role in, in these post-tenure reviews. Yes, it all starts out with a, with a faculty committee and, and whether you pass or fail. And 95% of professors in Georgia, the statewide, uh, passed. Mm -hmm. uh, but now they're taking away the role of faculty in that improvement plan. Uh, at Georgia Tech, there was a series of committees and people that would, uh, the non-administrators, they would help you come up with that improvement plan and decide whether or not you passed it. That, that's gone away now. I cannot see a, a university system uh, approving a post-tenure review policy at a local campus that includes a faculty-led hearing at the end for termination, because that would go directly against the policy they just voted into place. And so uh, there are many ways in which the faculty play a role in post-tenure review, but those are sidelined or maligned or, or, or very made very minor. Uh, it may start with the faculty committee, but it certainly doesn't end like that. And that's one of the specific quotes we've gotten out of the university system, that they did not want it to be a peer-led process, which was, right. to me, again, the definition of tenure as a due process led by faculty. Yeah, so let me um, uh, take apart two elements of uh, where faculty can uh, potentially play a role in the new policy, because um, both of them seem to be up in the air as the way this uh, new policy has been developed. So um, the old post-tenure review policy that the regents laid down was very vague, um, left things mostly to the member institutions. That's been entirely repealed and a, a very detailed uh, policy has been put um, in its place. Um, but even with the detail that's in the, the new policy, the regents direct um, each campus to develop its own policies 
um, under this new plan. Um, and the regents say that those policies should be developed uh, in consultation uh, with the faculty um, and should include uh, what they characterize as appropriate due process uh, mechanisms. So this is about the design of the plan uh, as it's going to be implemented in the systems rather than uh, what the specific plans are gonna wind up looking like for individual faculty as they're put on the post-tenure. I wanna come back to that question of what happens when an individual finds themselves um, in the post-tenure process. Um, but just in terms of uh, getting from here to there uh, in terms of putting a plan in place, um, should, should that kind of language about consultation with faculty and taking into account appropriate due process mechanisms um, give us uh, some confidence that the final product will be adequate or um, is, is this not good enough? Well, I would remind you of the original version of this consultation. Uh, mm -hmm. that at the point of an improvement plan, the dean and the department chair should consult with appropriate faculty. And we thought that was crazy. They right. changed that to should consult with the committee or a committee of faculty. Right. Right. Uh, okay, so they're going to change one word and change appropriate to committee. They're leaving appropriate in due process, but not defining it. So whatever is appropriate to them is what will happen. And they're taking away the actually defined due process, which is minimal according to their own word. This is the minimum we should have gotten. So it's all very confusing of how they use the English language. And so I don't trust their definitions of things they do define, nor do I trust the definitions of things they left undefined. So no, I don't think this is appropriate uh, due process that we're gonna get. Uh, and nor do I think that uh, there's gonna be consultation that's gonna be meaningful, that's gonna meet the definition of shared governments, that's gonna do anything but look completely opposite to the process we had in place before. Yeah, Tyler? Yeah, th my role with FIRE is mostly through, uh, mostly engaging legislatures and legislators in the various states and in Congress. And one of the things that are really important to us is clarity and precision mm -hmm. in language. Um, if we are going to a state and asking them for them to pass a, a bill that protects free speech on campus, we don't just say protect free speech on campus. We, we give out specific, like very specific language for the policies that institutions need to adopt. And this, these policies are obviously very open-ended. Uh, saying protect due process or consult with faculty uh, doesn't give a whole lot of precision in this policy. So one of the things I, I think we wrote in our in our blog post about about this bill is that like watching how how these policies will be implemented at the various institutions will be uh, will be very important to ensure that the due process is protected, ensure that faculty, ensuring that faculty do have uh, an appropriate say on what's going on. And I think the USG system, I think it has 26 member institutions. So that's gonna require an awful lot of watching from both FIRE and the AAUP, uh, because really the devil will be in the details of, of what these institutions uh, will be adopting. And again, I'll reiterate one of our concerns was that in the in the process you laid out that it requires institutions to provide their post-tenure review policies to the chancellor and the chancellor will provide institutions and the quote is with more specific guidelines that's awfully broad too what does that even mean so it, it really will turn it really will be looking into each institution all 26 of them to figure out what these policies will look like moving forward I would say that that one uh, phrase you mentioned about appropriate due process was yeah. was the effect of our raising hell over the last few weeks. Right. And so if that's all it got us, I don't know what it got us. And also, we've been told a time and time again that that they were just clarifying their intent uh, of in these revisions. They were really 
changing anything that of merit. And so they said, uh, Tristan Dilling, the vice president or vice provost of academic affairs for university system said that he always thought that shared governments or faculty voices were implied in the text that he wrote or that he had other people wrote. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's not explicit. Why didn't you make that explicit? Isn't that part of the whole thing? And so it just tells me that they were not thinking about us at all or what we wanted. And so they didn't listen to our feedback in, in the ensuing week between September and October. So whoever wrote this, or maybe it was a series of people that wrote this, um, it would not do well in my freshman writing class. Yeah, I suppose the good news is that um, uh, this has pushed the fight uh, out to the individual campuses and that there's still room to fight, um, uh, that the policies are not yet uh, fixed in much precision as to what it's going to look like on a campus by campus basis. Uh, The bad news is certainly the general guidance is not uh, very good um, and um, uh, sort of pushes us in in troubling directions in various ways. uh, among the sort of uh, somewhat vague uh, language that the uh, regents have uh, uh, included in their directive to the individual campuses um, is, relates to what they think the post-tenure review process is going to look like uh, for individual faculty who find themselves um, in it. Um, so the regents direct that the post-tenure review um, should include uh, what they call feedback uh, from the department chair and from faculty um, colleagues as part of the um, post-tenure review. Um, and then they also say that if the chair and the dean decide that someone with an unfavorable post-tenure view has not made satisfactory progress on their performance review plan, Uh, the institution uh, shall take appropriate remedial action uh, with the president making the final call. Um, And that remedial action could include termination um, and moreover it specifies it specifically will not be governed by existing policy um, on the grounds for removal and the procedures uh, for uh, dismissal. Um, So uh, how much do we know about um, what exactly that uh, remedial plan and and, uh, actions that might be taken from it um, will look like? And um, how much do we know about how that process is going to differ uh, from the existing process for disciplining tenured uh, faculty? Well, I think that in terms of improvement plans, um, you know, it from the policy that's passed out the statewide, there is a, a timeline of one to three years. It could be depending on how, as I said, severe, how bad you pass or failed the post interview. So one to three years because you have another post interview in five years. And that's what we heard from uh, the university system. They wanted to speed up the process of getting to that second review or getting to firing people who they didn't want around. Um, so they did that. They did that. If you compare that to to the current local campus policies, obviously they're quite different if you look at different tiers in different schools. And I'll just use Georgia Tech. I'm not yeah. from there, but I did happen to review it. And they have a, a series of steps that would define very specifically, do you get a one-year improved plan? Do you get a three-year improved plan? Do you, do, do you get not to do this for five years? And within that one to three, there's different ranges. And so there's a lot to debate locally um, about that, about what that one year might look like, about the, what the three year might look like, and what specific steps you should take, or does that translate into specific things that should happen uh, in terms of publication or grant money or things like that? I'm at a school where the research pressure is certainly not as strong a, a, as it is at Tech or Georgia. So I've heard from colleagues at those places that one to three years to restart a research agenda or get it going in another direction is just not enough time. Um, and so if we're saying we failed post-tenure review because of things that are out of our control, who decides that? 
Um, and is it somebody that knows your field or knows what you've done, uh, like a faculty-led peer review, or is it one or two people whom are overseeing 65 other people? Um, so it's very hard to know what an improvement plan would look like now under the new policies. Um, I haven't been under one, uh, I've been only seven years, and I haven't heard of a lot of people under one uh, elsewhere. Um, but in the report that they put out, again, 95% of people passed poaching review, but those that didn't, very few people succeeded in fulfilling the improvement plan. Yeah. And, and I don't know why that is, uh, but it was mainly at the R1s, the research university. So if that's the case, I can't imagine that number going up now. Right, right. Tyler, how much unconstrained discretion our president's going to wind up with at the end of the day um, in assessing whether or not uh, tenured faculty um, should be removed under this process? Well, I think our position is that the faculty are best are best suited to determine whether or not their fellow faculty members are fulfilling their roles appropriately. Uh, and so if the, if the sole discretion lies with, with one individual at the top, uh, that's that's right for abuse and, and uh, should be we should be uh, avoiding any, uh, if other states are, are thinking about replicating this they should have, they should be avoiding this in the future. Um, so uh, one of the points of real objections that the AUP singled out um, early on and that actually did get modified to some degree was language that was incorporated into. Uh, what is now uh, section 8.3.9 uh, um, of the rules. This is the uh, section regarding uh, discipline and removal of faculty uh, members. Um, and um, I'll quote some of the specific language uh, in just a moment. Um, uh, but this um, uh, specifies um, uh, how uh, people can be removed outside the existing uh, rules um, uh, for removal, and it makes room for um, the post-tenure uh, process in, in, uh, in the general language about how you remove uh, tenured faculty. Uh, when the AUP issued its earlier letter objecting to proposed language, um, the language that was under consideration was uh, quite a bit broader, um, suggesting the faculty could be removed without um, uh, the traditional procedural protections um, uh, in accord with uh, whatever, uh, as the language uh, characterized it, other policies uh, the regions uh, might choose to adopt, uh, which certainly seemed like uh, the potential death of tenure uh, in, in Georgia. Um, uh, the current policy is uh, somewhat more specific, so the added language is... Um, uh, such removals for cause shall be governed by the following policies on grounds for removal and procedures for dismissal. Remedial actions uh, taken as part of the post-tenure review process uh, shall not be governed by these policies on grounds for removal and procedures for dismissal, but rather shall be governed by the board policy um, on post-tenure review. Um, so potentially a smaller loophole than what the regents were originally considering. Um, how big of an improvement um, is this at the end of the day? Uh, Matthew? I would say it's no improvement at all. I mean, they said directly that this revision was not changing anything. It was clarifying their intent. Mm -hmm. And we were told we, we were misreading this. We misconstrued this. This wasn't about tenure at all, but it is exactly that, right? They're implicitly adding a reason for cause, uh, failed an improvement plan without explicitly adding it to the list of causes. And they're suggesting that before it was, you could be fired for reasons other than cause. Those mm -hmm. others were failing an improvement plan under posting or you. They just took that out and added a very specific sentence that says that. So I don't think they changed anything in terms of 
require or listening to our feedback that this was about tenure, they just made very clear what it is they were doing, which is removing post-tenure review from uh, dismissal for cause. And of course, remember, one of the remedial actions you could get in this whole thing is losing your job. And they're right. taking that out of the losing your job clause. Uh, so if that isn't the death of tenure, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Tyler, how, how big of improvement do you think this language is relative to how it started? I, <clears throat> so I might have a different read and perhaps it's a misinterpretation of the language from, from my end. Uh, this 8.3.9 language um, to me read that it would allow institutions to remove faculty members before the end of their contract. And so to me, it, it applied to contracted faculty members and probably not to tenured faculty members. Again, we objected mm. to this policy. We, we objected to this policy because it did explicitly state that it, that it would allow the institutions to remove them without cause. And they did amend that and, to cl- and made it uh, and clarify to say that if this will not apply to the post-tenure review process and instead this policy, uh, any sort of po- post-tenure review will fall under this other process that they outlined that we've already been talking about. Uh, so to me, this policy was substantially improved by that language because it was my reading that it applied only to yeah. contact contracted faculty and not to tenured faculty members. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, we're all on one-year contracts. I guess we're all contracted workers, and that meant untenured people, certainly. So mm-hmm. firing anyone with uh, without cause was, was the stated uh, application of that first language. And then they clarified that to, yes, you misconstrued it. It, it. We only meant it to be post-tenure review. Well, you didn't actually say that, but now that you're mm-hmm. saying that, it's still terrible. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but yes, it, it, it is about post-tenure review, and I think it is about tenure professors, but that's not what they said in the beginning. Right. Um, uh, the other um, uh, language I wanted to turn to specifically was, uh, which I think we've also uh, referenced to some degree, which is the language in um, uh, section 8.3.7.1 um, of the uh, new uh, policy. And again, uh, for those who'd like to follow along, uh, we'll include a link in the show notes to uh, these uh, specific um uh, policy that the regents um, adopted, so you can take a look at the language um, yourself. Um, but um, uh, here, um, uh, there was a reminder by the regents to uh, the uh, individual campuses that they that the regents had only delegated uh, the authority to make tenure decisions to uh, institution uh, presidents, um, and if the regents are not satisfied with how that power is being exercised um, on the individual campuses, uh, they can take it back. Um, and exercise that power um, uh, by the board. Um, We've seen some fights over tenure decisions at the board level um, uh, at other universities and other places, uh, most recently in North Carolina, um, over the tenure offer to uh, Hannah Nicole uh, Jones. Um, Are the Georgia regents um, uh, wanting to wade into those uh, waters and uh, really um, get into every uh, individual uh, tenure decision that uh, is being made on the Georgia campuses? Well, let's just say the Georgia region saw what happened in North Carolina and say, we want that. <laughs> I mean, they want to take back regions, uh, want to take the power of tenure decisions back from the campuses and want to be in the same boat that the University of North Carolina uh, Board of Trustees, I think they're called, or Board of something. Yeah. Um, and they thought that was a good idea. And the other part of this is that it isn't so much that they want to power of individual tenure decisions, yeah. right? They want the power to, to make the policies. And so they're suggesting to schools that if your policies aren't rigorous enough, well, 
we have a statewide system and we follow statewide policies and you have to fit within that. So I'm not sure what they mean by rigorous enough. Uh, I do can only conclude that they think it's too easy to get tenure and too easy to keep it. And they think by doing more, they can lessen that. Um, I I don't think the Board of Regents has a good um, relationship with tenure. Yeah, certainly the tone of a lot of these changes is, is an idea that tenure is currently being rewarded too easily and, and not taken away often enough. And, um, uh, and so uh, universities need, need to um, uh, scrutinize cases much more carefully and be more willing to um, withdraw tenure uh, uh, in, in more cases um, in, in, anyway. Um, uh, Tyler, what's, what's uh, your take on the extent to which um, the regents might uh, be looking to get involved in these uh, tenure decisions, and how problematic is that more broadly from Fire's perspective? Because, because as you note in the letter, right, there's a there's a uh, which, which of course the AUP's uh, position on this as well is we might think there's all kinds of virtues uh, to tenure, but a really crucial uh, feature of tenure um, is that it helps um, provide the procedural protections um, that underlie academic freedom uh, more more generally. And one of the worrisome things um, about um, regents getting more directly involved um, in setting tenure policy, but also evaluating uh, tenure cases um, is that they are less attuned and less sensitive to uh, some of the professional judgments and academic freedom concerns that um, uh, academics might might have and be making these decisions on, on a local level. Um, so how, how concerned should we be if regents want to um, uh, broadly have a uh, exercise more um, authority in this in this area? Yeah, we, we as you uh, mentioned, the, the uh, Hannah Nicole Jones case and yeah. um, uh, the UNC, we weighed in on that um, on a number of occasions, criticizing the role. I think it, I think you're right. There was the board of trustees there at the University of North Carolina system, and basically, in that case, they decided to not award tenure in in her. Uh, I think for journalism, for journalism uh, professorship there, and. Uh, over the over the recommendation of of her soon to be or you know presumptive colleagues who said that she was deserving of, of tenure and um, we were critical of that and uh, we don't know that that boards of regents or boards of trustees are necessarily uh, experts at what makes a, a a professor worthy of tenure and those decisions are historically and typically been left to faculty to decide for themselves. I don't know that it's necessarily the case that uh, there's zero role um, for um, a board of regents or a board of trustees. Uh, I think that any touch they have on this would need to be extraordinarily light, uh, but um, generally these things uh, have been have been pretty successful being left to the uh, tenure decisions have been very successful being left to, to faculty. I think that you know the the basic idea of a board of regents or board of trustees is a, is a buffer between the governor and and colleges and universities. I mean, this is what we had in the history of Georgia was 100 years ago. We had a governor directly fire professors, and the board of regents was strengthened after that. So, as as a buffer to political whims, it should do its job. But at the same time, that seems to be reversing itself. That it's not acting as a buffer; it's acting as the political whim itself. And so to then say we want more power when you do that is is really, really terrifying. 
Uh, I used to work in K through 12 and, you know, you basically, you get a, a contract, a principal signs it and they pass it up to the school board and, and they rubber stamp it. This, this is, this is not a rubber stamp that they're, that they, they had before, maybe they had before, but this is not what they have now or they're what they're wanting to have now. And so it, it really uh, clarifies the micromanaging uh, uh, in the sense of a nonpartisan, nonpolitical move, but it also, of course, in a red state like North Carolina or Georgia clarifies uh, the, direct political uh, attack upon higher education that is happening here. Uh, the Board of Regents, of course, is appointed by a series of Republican governors, so they do have Republican leanings. Um, but at the same time, that could happen in, in a blue state. So it's really terrifying to think that the role of faculty is being limited even more and more. And that was always the case in terms of um, you know, administration and students and, and things outside the classroom, but now directly in the classroom from curriculum to tenure to what we can teach and what we can't, it, it is um, a severely limiting of faculty uh, expertise. Uh, and it, that's the last thing to go. I can't think of anything else that that is left. Yeah. Um, uh, so one kind of reaction to these events in Georgia, besides uh, for people, especially outside of academia, to look at it and think uh, this all seems very complicated and I have no idea what's going on. Um, and so how should I think about these tenure cases? It, it's more thinking about these basic rules is, is more complicated than thinking about individual cases um, of uh, tenure denials or free speech uh, events where uh, it's easier for people on the outside to assess what's going on. These, these tenure rules are complicated. As we see, they're still uh, in development. Um, but another kind of reaction is also say, well, this seems to be a Georgia problem uh, rather than a uh, broader uh, national problem. Uh, I know, Tyler, you've got a sort of perspective on what state legislatures and uh, other governing uh, entities are doing um, across the country. Uh, Matthew, you've been talking to other chapters and the AUP uh, national organization is, is thinking about what's going on elsewhere. Um, why don't I start with Tyler? To what extent do you think this is an isolated um, event in Georgia and to what degree should we think this is uh, the beginning of something that could become a national uh, trend on, on uh, thinking about these specific issues of uh, tenure rules? You know, I, I don't have necessarily a great read on what individual boards of trustees are considering or what they're thinking. Um, the, the role of these trustees sort of vary from state to state, the ways that they're appointed or become elected. I think in Indiana, we elect, uh, I went to Indiana University, I think that mm -hmm. people that run for the board are elected um, by alumni. So um, I don't, I'm not sure what boards of trustees are, are considering. Uh, we do, we did see, I think it was in Iowa this year, a bill that was introduced that would have prevented the um, any institution from awarding tenure ever again. Uh, people that were on that had tenure would keep it, uh, right. but the but no institution would be allowed to award it ever again in the future. Uh, that bill didn't go anywhere, um, but it wouldn't be. Um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see more bills like that, something like that happening in legislatures. Uh, and fire um, weighed in on that, saying it was a bad idea and objected to it. So. Um, if, if and when we see these bills, uh, or you know, even with the boards of regents, sometimes they're a little harder to track uh, than state legislatures, where there are a whole bunch of ways to, uh, you know, track legislative activity. But it's a lot more difficult to to, to track boards of regents activity. Um, but we will you know, we will keep watching and, and see how the see how these things play out. And uh, I, I, I guess in some, I wouldn't be surprised to see the spread, but I, I don't have a, a 
great read about boards and regents. Yeah, Matthew, how worried should we be that this is uh, coming to uh, regents near you? Um, I mean, I, I definitely think that Georgia is unique and therefore it could start a, a fire across the Southeast at least. Um, in terms of legislation, um, I got involved in, in campus uh, politics and faculty affairs during the uh, campus carry debate here in Georgia, and we were not the first state to do that. But what really has stuck with me during that debate was the way in which the advocates of, of campus carry guns on campus um, really were in it for the long haul. They spent years getting that one bill through the legislature. I think it was eight that it was one person filed mm -hmm. it, and eight years later, the governor signed it. So if you make that as an analogy to any bill killing tenure like in Iowa, I mean, and we live in a not just a partisan world, but a, a, um, people on the margins have the most power now. Um, or the voices on the outside. So it, it may not last next year or even the year after that, but it will be filed again in a year and it could work its way up to a point where the momentum could just send it on to the governor's desk. And so um, I'm, I'm very concerned, not just for the next year in terms of anti-CRT legislation or anti-tenure legislation, but just the years ahead and, and the ways in which both we now have a, a two-pronged attack, both from legislation and from within the House, within the Board of Regents or the Board of whatever you have in your state, is it coming from either direction? And, and it's hard to stop either direction, um, especially as an individual faculty member, even as the national AUP is, is threatening to investigate and censure the Georgia system, which is one, one of the uh, I think the, maybe the second system they will have censored in their history because systems usually aren't in play. We just haven't been yeah. paying attention at the system level. Um, and so um, it, it could spread very easily, yes, indeed, both through legislation and through the, the if you will, the higher education system. So uh, do either of you have any final thoughts of things we um, uh, haven't uh, talked about enough that we ought to make sure we uh, mention before we uh, wrap up? One thing I'd like to plug is uh, FIRE has launched a faculty legal defense fund. Uh, if you are a faculty member that finds yourself on, a, on the end of you know, an adverse treatment or you feel like there was insufficient due process uh, provided to you uh, during your, during your um, you know, 10 year reviews and that leads to a termination of some sort of adverse employment uh, decision, we'd be, uh, we would welcome you um, contacting us uh, and we can provide uh, Keith, maybe we could provide a link uh, in the podcast uh, yeah. description uh, to our faculty legal defense fund. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, it's one thing to get procedures in place. It's another thing to get uh, those procedures uh, utilized in a, in a good way. And um, uh, unfortunately, all too often we see universities abusing their own procedures uh, in, in pretty scary ways in individual cases. And having, uh, having help um, uh, through that process um, often is, is critically important. Uh, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, obviously the AUP has a legal defense fund as well, and, and those are great uh, things to know about. I would say in terms of the possible uh, censure, I don't have a vote on it, so I can talk about it openly. <laughs> if that happens, right, what it would take to get off that list. And, and right. if you know any of the cases uh, that universities do want to get off that list, it may take a couple of years for them to decide to do it and then, and then to work hard to get off it. So what would it take to get off this list? I mean, yeah. a total reversal of these policies certainly would do it, and I don't have any hope that this specific board of regents is willing to do that. But if we, if you just might go back to giving us the faculty-led hearing at the point of termination, that might be a step in the direction uh, because that's what you've taken away here. Uh, the other things certainly can be debated and they are parts of the death of tenure, but if you're taking away the faculty-led peer review part of it and, and putting that on, that might get you off the list. But it, it is a, uh, getting on that list uh, in the whole uh, 
debacle the last week is just showing it's a self-inflicted wound here in Georgia. I mean, we've had many and we've been in the national spotlight for a while and now we're adding higher education to that. Um, so it, it is a failure of leadership across the board. Um, and so I, I just hope that it is reversed. I just don't have any hope of it being reversed anytime soon. Yeah, thanks. And certainly it's um, uh, given what the regions have done now, it's, it has sort of put the ball in the court of some individual campuses. We'll have to see how some of those uh, more detailed policies wind up playing out um, on individual campuses. They might be able to um, uh, lessen the effect of some of these decisions, but um, uh, has certainly put Georgia in a, in a difficult um, spot as, uh, as they work out these uh, processes um, over the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, so I think we'll leave it um, there. Um, thank you for joining us. And again, I want to remind uh, listeners that they can find links to the new post-tenure review policy in Georgia um, and the letters from uh, FIRE and AAUP, and AAUP uh, laying out uh, the concerns with the policy um, in the show notes um, to this podcast episode. These are contra- uh, um, uh, complicated policies, and I would um, encourage you to take a look um, at the details, um, getting a sense of the specifics of these policies um, is important to understanding um, these issues and also to understanding um, how these issues may well uh, uh, find themselves playing out um, on other campuses across the country. Um, Please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast uh, through your favorite platform uh, so that you don't miss an episode and rate us on iTunes, which helps others uh, find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom um, as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.